0: I'm Gregory Berg. The following two Morning Show interviews are among the oldest that still exist in WGTD's archives. These are interviews from all the way back in 1989, conducted by longtime WGTD News Director Bill Guy, who created The Morning Show and was my predecessor as Morning Show host. Bill remarked on a number of occasions that he believed that nobody loved their work more than journalists, and he always really loved every opportunity he had to interview local journalists on the morning show. On a couple of rare occasions, Bill had the thrill of speaking with nationally known journalists, and that's what you will be hearing today. First, an interview recorded with renowned UPI columnist Georgie Ann Geyer. The second interview with highly regarded television journalist Judy Woodruff, enjoy.
1: And well, we are talking today with uh, syndicated uh, columnist Georgie Ann Geyer. And uh, Ms. Geyer, I guess my, my first question is, how did you dis- how did you make your career choice to uh, uh, to become uh, to become a journalist first of all, and then to uh, have the opportunity to to travel the world, uh, covering events uh, all around the globe? And I
2: talked to. You? To young people, and particularly to young women, uh, when they ask me questions like that or they ask me for advice, uh, I have only one piece of advice for young people in general, and that's follow what you you love. Uh, Don't look for what they're looking for out there. uh, And know what's inside yourself. And you're a very lucky person, I think, if you do know what's inside yourself, because that's the first key. And I was very lucky, because I, I always knew I loved books, I loved writing, I loved to write myself, and even when I was a little girl, and uh, then I loved uh, to study other countries and other cultures and languages, and to, I'd sit and stare, at, and I'm from Chicago, and our little house on the south side, and, and sit and pore over maps for hours. And I remember once, when I was just a little girl, I found Jerusalem, and I guess from my Baptist Sunday school, I had thought, you know, my, I thought that Jerusalem was a, a, a religious mythical place and i i was intensely excited it was one of my first uh, first uh, confrontations with with aesthetics the uh, religion and 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 a place actually being there it was very exciting so i i was very lucky then when i i grew up and went to northwestern and started with chicago daily news and little by little it wasn't that I was sitting out to be a foreign correspondent, it was that I knew basically what I wanted to do. There were those countries wanting to see other countries and know them, the excitement, uh, the glamour, the intellectual stimulation, and then to write about them. And so I found a place, uh, and again, I was very lucky to be find the place and partially to create it uh, where I could do those things.
1: You've had the opportunity, of course, to meet world leaders of all stripes, two, I think, must have been just fascinating, uh, and I'd like you to to share with us your your impressions uh, of uh, these two. I'm thinking, of course, of uh, Libya's Gaddafi and uh, Iran's uh, Khomeini. What what are your impressions of those two?
2: Gaddafi I met twice. Once in 1973 in Libya, and then again at a conference there mm-hmm. in 1978. <clears throat> Gaddafi is a uh, he's not nearly so handsome as he used to look. Uh, he's sort of his face is kind of strange. It's sort of Asymmetrical. It's not quite right, and his eyes tend to kind of roll in his head, which is kind of strange. Uh, he was very taut. I would say the first time I met him, there were two of us with him. In an interview that started at twelve midnight, which is something that the dictators all do. And I personally, I'm not impressed with it. It's a way of trying to impress you, but really, it's a it's an imposition upon you. They're trying to show you, you know, how how mystical they are and how important they are. And uh, he is part, Gaddafi, when I analyze him, he's part desert mystic. He comes out of the particular type of Islam of Libya and those northern uh, tier countries in Africa. He, he saw himself as the descendant of Abba, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. Uh, he calls himself a Nasserite. When he used to go to Egypt, he would, he would ask the Egyptians after Nasser died, where is Nasser's will? And he thought Nasser had left him the Middle East. Uh, of course it was absurd, but Gaddafi has great uh, great uh, uh, delusions of grandeur that he is the leader of the Middle East. He's also part consummate terrorist, and I'm very careful about using those words, but he believes in the use of terror uh, as an instrument of, of policy. He's, he's a very, very strange man, and yet one of the things I always stress is that when we understand them and analyze them within their own culture, uh, they're not strange at all. I mean, Libyans do not think Gaddafi is strange. We have to keep that in mind uh, when we analyze, in particular people like me. Now, Khomeini, I saw in 1978 also, uh, those few weeks when he was in Paris, when he left Iraq and was going back to Iran to overthrow the Shah. And uh, I've I've always thought myself as quite a rational woman. But when I saw him in this little French summer house outside of Paris, and it was very snowy and cold, I was very conservatively dressed, and I had the shawl over my head with just my eyes showing. Uh, When I saw him, when he came into this room and there were the two of us, one of the men who was with him and I seated on the floor, I really had the feeling uh, at first that there was this black apparition or creature kind of floating to the room in front of me. And during the entire time, hour or more that we were with him, he never never looked at me, uh, but he never looked at Ibrahim Yazdi, the man either, and he just stared between us with these dark, sinister eyes. And when he got up to leave, again, I had the feeling of this great creature sort of floating out of the room. It was just really surreal. And I also had a very distinct feeling, I've never had this before since, that I was in the presence of consummate evil. That's the only way I can put it. And I was. I truly believe I was. Uh, When you see what this man has done, a million dead on the, on the, the battlefield in this ridiculous war, which he, in effect, started by attacking uh, Iraq and wanting to overthrow the government. Uh, the Tens of thousands he's killed in his own jails. And now this political move, and that's what we have to understand, this political move with this novel of Salman Rishti, because uh, Khomeini, Iran was starting to go to open again to the West. And if it hadn't been this novel, Khomeini would have found something else to rally his people around him, to reawaken the, the fanaticism that he had in the early days and uh, he's a, a hateful uh, corrupt man and uh, what he's doing is not within islam it's really heretical within islam
1: what do you see as the the future of us relations with those two countries with libya and with iran
2: i think yeah, bill as long as those two men are alive uh vary. we shouldn't even we shouldn't even think too much about uh, uh about relations uh, it was When the war ended last summer, or ostensibly ended between Iraq and Iran, uh, everybody in the West, a lot of people in the West, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States, rushed to Tehran, thinking, now they're going to rebuild, now they're going to do this, now there's room, now there are moderates, finally. Well, as long as there are moderates, but as long as Khomeini is alive with his need for this fanaticized following, whenever whenever they get close to any kind of agreement with the West, he will destroy it, as he has in the last week. Uh, Gaddafi is the same way. These two men hate the West. They really hate, and they particularly hate the United States. And we should be very, very careful with them. We should let them go their own way, and we should make very clear where our lines are. I'm, I've am i been a supporter of President Bush's, and I think he's a very decent and rational man, and I think he'd be a good president. But I'm disappointed that he didn't speak out at this time. He should have spoken out in the most... Uh, uh, unmistakable terms against Khomeini and against these death threats. It's a horrendous thing when you think about it.
1: Ms. Geyer, have you had an opportunity to uh, to meet Mr. Gorbachev from the Soviet Union, and and what would your assessment be of uh, both his prospects and of the Soviet Union?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, Bill, I haven't met him. I, I had a wonderful interview with President Reagan, and just at the time uh, when at, at the summit uh, with. Uh, Chairman Gorbachev uh, a year ago last December and it was very thrilling because it was at that uh, at, at that interview with four of us columnists that president reagan said that he could could now work with the soviet union and with mr gorbachev with whom he was quite taken at that point because they no longer believed in one world marxian domination as he said it was it was a very thrilling interview because it really changed uh, history but uh, unfortunately, I didn't meet Gorbachev at the time. Uh, I, I hope to someday. He's obviously a very compelling man, a very charming man, uh, a very uh, innovative man. He understands very well. He's very reasonable. He understands what has to be done in the Soviet Union is not to be a, a third or a fourth world power with the first world military, as he, as he has put it. His chances? I was in Russia again in November for the first time in 17 years, and I was stunned at the fact that there is no development, there's no building. I mean, the place is going backward, backward, backward. And uh, Gorbachev sees this and knows this. His chances of doing something about it, it will take decades. You know, I mean, he has to restructure the entire country. And the more he restructures it, if he's able to, against the lassitude and, and the exhaustion of that that society, if he's able to, it will take years and years. and. Each step he takes will bring him closer and closer to a free enterprise system, and each step then will be fought harder and harder by the old conservatives. So he may be very popular in Europe, he may be very charming in the West, but he has got one heck of a job at home, I can tell you.
1: Just a few days ago, on Washington Week in Review, with the television program, the public TV program you appear on from time to time, you characterized this past week in Afghanistan with the withdrawal of the the last of the Soviet troops as uh, an extraordinary week in uh, in world history. Would you tell us a little more about it?
2: Yes, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, uh, I, I would put what happened this last week, particularly on Wednesday, which was February fifteenth, which was the deadline for the Soviet troops to withdraw from Afghanistan. I would put it down in importance in world history, along with the end of, of World War II, the end of World War One. It, it was truly the end of an era. Uh, and nine years ago, I, I sat down watching how it struck me that morning when I watched television. I kept watching over and over, deliberately, the Russian lieutenant general who had been the commander of Soviet troops, uh, Lieutenant General Boris Gromov, walk across the friendship bridge between Afghanistan and Soviet Central Asia and say he was not looking back, and I thought what a little man, stature and stature he was, and he had his young boy uh, on his arm, his young son, and I thought nine years ago when the Russians went in, we thought they were ten feet tall. The whole world thought they were. They thought they were We all thought they were supermen, that they would just keep expanding and expanding and expanding in the world. And they were talking about Peter the Great's uh, warm water ports. They would keep going through Pakistan because that's what they've been doing. And now suddenly they are not expanding. They're pulling back. They've lost, and they've lost at the hands of of, uh, medieval in many ways, very courageous tribal Afghanistan uh, uh, fighters, warriors, Uh, out of medieval times, Uh, it's an extraordinary moment because what it means is that communism is not at all inevitable in the world. And uh, after this moment, uh, after this week, history changed for all times, and uh, it it changed for the
1: better. Ms. Geyer, thank you so much. Welcome to Wisconsin. It's nice to have you with us. And I, I certainly hope we get the opportunity to talk again. The
0: preceding interview was recorded back in 1989 as was the following interview with Judy Woodruff. At the time of this conversation in 1989, Judy Woodruff was one of the principal contributors to the mcneil News NewsHour on PBS. Uh, in 1993, she ended up uh, leaving PBS to begin work at CNN. She was there until 2005. In 2006, she returned to PBS, and uh, she remains the principal anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour.
1: Ms. Woodruff, as uh, Chief Washington Correspondent for the mcneil News NewsHour, how do you decide, or how is the decision made, which stories you're going to cover?
3: Well, it's very much a group decision, Bill. We get together every morning uh, here in Washington in New York by conference call and sit around a table in each city and uh, those of us who are involved in the production and the reporting that goes into the NewsHour, Sit and talk about what the news of the day is and how we want to approach it. We're very much guided by the fact that we don't want to be a carbon copy of the commercial network uh, news programs which air nationally uh, every night. We believe that we are here to be an alternative, to provide something that is more in depth, and to provide a program that gives people more than just the headlines the who what when where if you will behind the news. And so we you know we have we make news judgments pretty much the same as any other news people do but we are very much guided by uh, our desire to provide more than uh, more than a once over lightly.
1: Is there such a thing as a typical day for you?
3: Not really. I do come into the office most mornings when I'm not traveling and we do have the morning meeting as I just described. Uh, Certainly my morning is taken up with reading the newspaper and making sure that uh, I'm up on whatever stories. Uh, have happened overnight. I try to be available to do interviews when the news hour needs me to do those. And when uh, there's not something that's cooking for one particular day, then I might be working on a story that uh, has a longer lead time. For example, right now I'm working on a story that, that will be airing a few nights from now. Uh, I've been out traveling around uh, doing interviews for that piece, and right now I'm I'm holed up in my office writing the script uh, on my word processor. So, uh, so the, you know, this day is not typical, but on the other hand, it's not all
1: that unusual. Judy Woodruff is also the anchor for um, Public uh, Television's uh, weekly documentary series, Frontline with Judy Woodruff, which is part of a a dying breed, the hour-long television documentary. Are there a couple Frontlines that are special favorites of yours?
3: well there are in fact you know it, it's it's easy for me to say that uh you know they're all my favorites because i think we've done some uh, superb reporting but the ones that that we have been uh given uh, national journalism awards for including some of the ones we've done on uh urban poverty uh uh in the united states uh, programs uh, we've done on uh, the reagan administration and its uh, foreign policy in lebanon programs that were done on uh, central america on aids You go down the list and practically any policy, uh, uh, any issue that has confronted this country uh, in one way or another and its policymakers uh, has appeared on Frontline. And I'm very proud to say that I believe we've been on the cutting edge year after year since we first went on the air in 1983 with some of the most important uh, topics and treatment of those topics in American journalism. And as you say, the documentary form is a dying breed the networks are moving away from that they're moving to the primetime entertainment infotainment uh, format uh, and away from the uh, the in-depth documentary and i i very much think it's a real loss to the american viewing public
1: of course before moving to public tv you were for a long time with uh, with nbc as white house uh, correspondent day in day out is is there a big difference in doing journalism for uh, in commercial broadcasting as opposed to public broadcasting.
3: Well, I I think that there is uh it's not that uh, the journalism per se is any different because I think one's news instincts don't change. Um I'm still guided by what I hope are are pretty decent uh, instincts for what's a story and and what is news and what and what do people want to hear about? What are they what are they really interested in? But beyond that it's very very different. At the network we were we had to pay a great deal of attention to keeping uh, stories within very tight time restrictions. Uh, I would spend a day or two working on researching a story, and then I would end up having a minute or a minute and a half at most to report it on an evening show, or even less than that on the morning show, on the Today Show, when I worked at NBC. Now I'm given much greater time uh, leeway. It's, it's not that we can just go on and on without any sense of, uh, of good editing, but, for example, the story I'm working on now in the governor's race in Virginia Uh, which will be over, I guess, by the time I come to Kenosha. Uh, I'll probably spend 12 or 15 minutes on the air on this particular story, and because of that, I'm able to to deal with it in much greater depth, clearly, than I would have at the network. And the same thing with interviews on McNeil Air. We're able to spend much more time on those interviews than you see on most of the network shows where they're able to do interviews.
1: Ms. Woodruff, are there any trends in uh, in television journalism that uh, you find... uh, either somewhat discouraging or perhaps somewhat hopeful. Well,
3: the discouraging trend is the one that I mentioned a moment ago, this move toward the primetime evening uh, infotainment entertainment uh, new breed of news program. I don't really know what to call some of these new shows that the networks are coming up with because they're not all news, and I suppose you could say neither are they all entertainment. They're trying to do both, but I I genuinely worry that in the process that we, we muddy uh, people's definition of what news is so that the next time they turn on a news program um, it, it's harder for them to take the serious treatment of a story it's harder for them to follow the very critical developments in our country and, and and overseas, international developments and the economy and foreign policy and domestic issues that I think make for an informed citizenry and the more people expect that every time they're going to turn on television they're going to be entertained rather than informed, I think we're spoiling the American people and and they're going to expect quick sound bites and and snappy little uh, news reports and in and out, you know, in quickly and out quickly and don't spend too much time on that story. And I find that a very troubling uh, trend. trend. I find that a very troubling trend. Um, If you look around the world there are few countries where, where with literate populations that read as little as we do in the United States, and I think that television has to be very careful about getting completely away from one of its uh, most original missions, and that was to inform the public and not just entertain.
1: Recently, there was a, a flap when one of the networks aired a... A filmed a simulation of a news event apparently without labeling that the fact that it was a, a simulation rather than the actual event they were talking about. Do uh, such things, simulations, recreations, have a, a place in uh, in serious journalism?
3: I don't think they have any place at all, and I'm terribly distressed by the trend toward using these so-called reenactments or recreations. Um, you know, I'm really out of the old-fashioned school of journalism, where you know, if, if you don't have pictures of it. Uh, then, you don't have pictures of it, and you don't you don't sit around and try to pretend that you do. We already use artists in a courtroom because we're not permitted to bring cameras in many cases into the courtroom. And I find that uh, you know that's probably acceptable. But to recreate uh, a news event, I find just astonishing. I find it unnecessary, and I also particularly bothers me because I think it it leads the public. Uh, to wonder what news is after all. I mean, if we're going to go around creating pictures of things when we don't have pictures already that we didn't shoot ourselves, uh, the public is going to wonder what's real and what isn't. And I think that's something we have to worry about.
1: Ms. Woodruff, uh, just one more item I'd like to be sure to ask you about while I have the opportunity. Just a little better than a year ago, you were the Moderator at the vice presidential debate between Senators Benson and Quayle, and I have to ask you what uh, what it was like in that room, and what thoughts were going through your mind when Senators Benson and Quayle had their uh, had their ex- uh, exchange uh, that we all know about, when uh, Senator Quayle pointed out that he was uh, had about as much experience as John Kennedy when he ran for president. What was that like?
3: Well you could have heard a, a pin drop in the room. There was absolute silence for a for a moment. there was a collective intake of breath and then of course, uh, Senator Benson came back with his famous uh, rejoinder that uh, Senator I know I knew John Kennedy and you know John Kennedy and I suppose you could say it was a highlight of the debate. Um, it, it certainly wasn't one of the more noted moments in American uh, politics because you had uh, this 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 vice presidential candidate, uh, Republican vice presidential candidate, Senator Quayle, who was, who was uh, considered a, uh, a lightweight by uh, many so-called pundits and political observers uh, running against uh, the Democratic uh, uh, senator from Texas who was on a ticket that was considered to be uh, going down the drain, if you will. And, you know, it was, it was a really dramatic moment, I think, for all of us for all of us in journalism Quayle in particular uh it was fascinating to watch him that evening because he had so obviously been programmed and rehearsed to recite certain lines uh, back no matter what the questions were and we saw that again and again that evening when he was asked uh, various questions about his qualifications and he kept repeating uh the same answer over and over again um it was, it was really quite an experience for me and one that I will remember for uh, the rest of my life.
1: Okay. Ms. Woodruff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I know you're on deadline, so we're going to let you go. Judy Woodruff, uh, our guest, the chief Washington correspondent for the mcnee News NewsHour on Public TV and also the anchor for Public TV's weekly documentary series, Frontline, with Judy Woodruff. And Judy Woodruff will be in Kenosha at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside on Wednesday, November 15th. Ms. Woodruff, thank you again so much.